The opinions and viewpoints expressed in .NET Rocks are not necessarily those of its sponsors or of Microsoft Corporation, its partners, or employees. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, which is solely responsible for its content. Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. Kids, disengage your Heisenberg compensators and listen up. It's time for another stellar episode of .NET Rocks, the internet audio talk show for .NET developers with Carl Franklin and Richard Campbell. This is Lawrence Ryan announcing show number 329 with guest Kevin McNish, recorded live Tuesday, March 18, 2008. .NET Rocks is brought to you by Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter. And now, offering SharePoint 2007 video training with Sahil Malik on DVD, DNR TV style. Order your copy now at www.franklins.net. Support is also provided by Telerik, combining the best in Windows forms and ASP.NET controls with first-class customer service. Online at www.telerik.com. And by Code Magazine the leading independent magazine for .NET developers. Online at www.code-magazine.com. And now, the man who's still recovering from Pond Far Night at the Vulcan Club, Carl Franklin. Thank you very much. Welcome back to .NET Rocks. It's Carl Franklin here in uh, New London, Connecticut, and Richard Camel in Vancouver. We are here for the next hour for your .NET listening pleasure. Hey, Richard. Yes, sir. We are indeed, and I'm looking forward to this one. It's going to be a lot of fun. What is this? April something? What date April is this? April 1st. April 1st? There will be no pranks. Are you sure? There will be no pranks. Hmm. Wow. All right. You want me? I'll tell you my best April Fool's Day prank ever. Okay. You tell me yours. I'll tell you mine. I started it in February, where I convinced my friends that I'd written a program that could carry on conversations. <laughs> and I was testing it with them. And really what I was doing is I was typing back to them, but I'd modified my modeming program, because this is like 1980s, right? That so that it would send back entire sentences. And because I typed pretty fast, it felt weird to you. You didn't think there was a person typing, because it would burst back fast phrases. Wow. So we did that for quite a while, until I finally admitted on April 1st that I was just doing it myself. Then little did I know that a couple of my friends who were in university were actually taking it to their professors, <laughs> and the professors were convinced, too, that I'd written an artificial intelligence program. My uh, favorite, or, uh, my favorite prank is a program I wrote back in the VB four days, I think, or VB three. Man, no, I guess it was VB four. Well, it's a little practical joke program you install on somebody's computer when they're like, you know, in the bathroom or something. You know, uh, your your coworker, your boss, somebody like that. And uh, as soon as they come back, it waits until there's keyboard and mouse activity, so it doesn't want to do anything, and while well, nobody's there to appreciate it. And then a few minutes later, the screen flips for five seconds. Just turn the whole screen, turn upside the down. whole screen upside down That's for hilarious. five seconds and then back. 
and and various other pranks too, like uh, moving the entire image on the screen off uh, x-axis about I don't know 150 random pixels or something like that, and bouncing back and forth like there's a short in the monitor cable. <laughs> <laughs> Torturing the mortals. Finally ending, and there's several other pranks in there, finally ending with the coup de grace, which is a dialogue box that comes up and says, format your entire hard drive, yes or no. And no matter which button you press, it says, okay, formatting now, and puts up a little status bar. (laughs) (laughs) And I I was reading and writing like this huge file, so the disk is going, lovely. It's great. Yeah. And I never, uh, I never gave that to anyone because I didn't want to be held accountable for anyone who lost data while rebooting frantically. Right. Anyway, let's get on to Better Know Framework. <laughs> All right, Sarah, what do you got for me? Well, this is an interface that we have talked about on DNR TV, I believe, with Miguel Castro. I know John Paul Boudou did it with DNR TV. Um, it's the IDB Data Adapter Interface. Oh. Now, this is in system.data.common, which is interesting because all the provider stuff and all the goo for ADO.net is in there. Uh, you know, the data adapters, the data sets, and all of that stuff. The thing in the commands and anything that's used in a particular provider like a Oracle or, data, uh, you know, OLADB or SQL. And so these are the, the common interfaces, and, and you can use these too. So the IDB data adapter interface and I'm reading here, represents a set of command-related properties that are used to fill the data set and update a data source and is implemented by .NET Framework data providers that access relational databases. So you can use this to write your own data provider, your own data adapter, as a matter of fact. So it's got some uh, really good uh, samples in there. And if you're really interested in it, check out the series on design patterns that I did with uh, Jean-Paul Boudou, on DNR TV at dnrtv.com. Okay, Richard, your turn. All righty. Let me hit you with an email. Dear Carl and Richard, long-time listener, somewhere in the 100s, first-time emailer. I just finished listening to the show with, and then he editorializes himself. I love that. It says, Ed, great Scott, I've listened to so many DNRs that I'm writing my email exactly like all the other ones you've read. <laughs> Jumping back to the actual copy okay. here, just finished the show with Tim Huckabee and noticed that when you guys talked about other big companies, you didn't use their actual names, instead using descriptives like the G company, hmm. the book company, and the auction company. Well, okay. I was wondering if that was something <laughs> you were forbidden to do because of your sponsorship by Microsoft, oh, yeah. something you do out of respect because you aren't, but aren't required to do, or just because it's fun. Well, I think, first of all, that was Tim's behavior, not ours. Yes. We have no problem saying Google, Yahoo, Amazon, anything, eBay. Any of those things. Any of those things. Uh, yeah, and- well, and the funny part is that Tim Huckabee does all these keynotes with Microsoft right. where those terms may well be an issue. So in as much as he does it, we tease him about it, too. Well, and of course, he's not serious. He says those – he calls out those companies by name all the time anyway. So right. We're just we're just sort of – playing a little tongue-in-cheek, uh, you know, politically correctness. It's fun I to guess. tease Tim Huckabee. That's the truth. That's basically what it comes down to. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of the reason, I thought it was a nice touch, and I was hoping you'd talk about even more companies so I could hear the nicknames you gave them. Hmm. Hmm. 
We'll the only other that. one I could think of that you might have a creative nickname for, Carl, just you personally, is Adobe, but I wasn't even going to go there. Oh, come on. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, our whole entire show wouldn't be possible without Adobe Audition. That's true. We, we all use Adobe Audition. And it's a great product. And we aren't actually sponsored by Microsoft. No, that's right. So, uh, you know, for folks who think so, I'm here to tell you, we're not. We're regional directors, but um, part of being a regional director means um, calling out uh, issues when we see them without any fear of repercussion. Well, so, in fact, generally, we're thanked. Yeah, generally. All right, let me finish the email. Yeah. Also, I'm interested in getting into Silverlight and was wondering for a DNR TV about it. Such a strongly visual technology like Silverlight would be a great subject for a show. I've heard lots about it, but I would like to see how Silverlight development works, possibly after 2.0 is released. I noticed that there are two shows on WPF, but I'm more interested in the cross-platform compatibility and smaller surface area of Silverlight. My response to that is, just one show? Just one, Just yeah. one? Uh, you can expect to see quite a few shows on Silverlight in the future. And, of course, DNR TV itself delivered via Silverlight right. now, too. Yes. Keep up the good work. Here's to 300 more. Peter Christensen, Aurora, Illinois. All right, Peter. Thank you very much for that. Uh, here comes your mug. Duck. Nice. There it goes. Out the door. And speaking of throwing things, Dev Teach. Speaking of non-sequiturs. Uh, no, this is a good sequitur. Okay. May 12th to 16th in Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Yeah. Carl and I will be there, and we're doing a panel discussion on Wednesday night, which will be a, D a .NET Rocks, and it's called The Future of .NET. And check out the lineup of panelists. The one, the only, Ted Neward. Ted. The indomitable... Oren Eni. You knew this was going to happen. You knew I had to put those two together again. We had them <laughs> together before for the ORM Smackdown. Now we're having it for the future.net. But I figured I'd spice Dr. it up Phil. a little. I figured I'd kick it up a notch <laughs> with some trouble in the form of Scott Bellware. Oh, man. That's going to be a bloodbath. Oh, I'm, I'm bringing it back. <laughs> and Kevin, you'll be there too, right? I will be. Awesome. Well, Okay, before you say another word, let me introduce you, okay? Uh, Kevin McNish is a Microsoft.net MVP and president of Oakleaf Enterprises Incorporated. He's a well-known INETA speaker and trainer throughout North America and Europe, including VS Live, DevTeach, SDC Netherlands, Advisor DevCon, and numerous code camps. He's author of the book Professional UML with Visual Studio.net and authors articles for .NET magazines. He's the chief software architect of the MM.NET framework and spends about half his time on the road training and mentoring companies to build well-designed, high-performance.NET applications. Welcome back to the show from show 55, was it? 55. How are you, Kevin? Does that make me an old-timer? Oh, yeah. So. That's almost like four years on the nose. <laughs> All right. So... Uh, you guys got to talk about your best practical joke. Can I tell you mine? Sure. Absolutely. So, year 2000, right, my next-door neighbor's been reading all these books uh, about end of the world's coming, marauding hordes will be coming over the hill, that sort of thing. The three but, horses of the apocalypse or whatever it is. Oh, yeah, seven. and he's actually stocking up on food. He's just convinced uh, it's all going to go down uh, January 1st, 2000. So. Yeah. 
it's New Year's Eve, and I'm sitting in my house. It's about quarter to 12, and I'm seeing, you know, it's turned midnight around the world. You know, mm-hmm. everyone survived so far. Mm-hmm. I'm thinking, this guy is going to be so disappointed. <laughs> <laughs> so you're no. really just doing him a favor. <laughs> <laughs> right. You know. So I sneak over I, into his basement, and I hear the countdown. Five, four, three, two, one. Happy New Year. I hit the power switch. Chunk. Oh, sweet. <laughs> sweet. And Darkness. dead silence. <laughs> so I hear footsteps run over to look at my house. I had all the lights out. And I had nice. the neighbors on that side do it, too. Your footsteps run the other way, and he looks down the street and sees there's lights, and there's a pause, and you hear, Kevin! <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, you know, how long did I have you right in the palm of my hand? Yeah. There was about awesome. five seconds where I thought, this is it. Yeah, this is it. Get uh, the rifle, Martha. If I yeah. had more time and I was you, I might have gone door to door all down my yeah. street Gaged and asked the whole them to neighborhood. participate by turning their lights off at midnight. Yeah. <laughs> so oh, awesome. Man. That's great. So I, I was on duty December 31st, 1999. We were working on major software projects back then. And uh, one of them uh, involved operating with the Port of Vancouver, which is a huge deal. And, and everybody was concerned. It was a big deal. So we spent the entire the New Year's Eve, uh, uh, you know, as Japan and Australia and so forth were going across midnight and the world wasn't ending. We pretty much came to the conclusion like six o'clock at night that... Nothing was going to happen. We were going to be fine. And uh, I was, this is Kent Allstad I was working with even back mm. then. It's amazing. Uh-huh. I think. And he said, uh, well, we should do something. So I quickly made some phone calls, found some place that we could go to, to, you know, go to dinner with our wives at least and, and celebrate. And then his wife decided that that wasn't fancy enough and found us a really, really fancy meal. And it was a bit of an ordeal to get this all done, to get downtown to this really, like, uh, 10-course meal, the whole nine yards, and it was $400 a person. It was expensive, but, you know, it's the turn of the millennium kind of thing, sort of, uh, by a year or so. So, and we race down there, you know, very short notice, all sit down, and the meal comes out, and every course has meat in it. And Kent is a vegetarian. Oh. Yeah. And he's, he's like, after all of this, after all of this craziness to get here, I am not not eating this. Wow! I got to do something, and and he's a, and he's yeah, vegetarian for for belief reasons. So he just he had a little prayer and he ate it, really? and then found out the next day. Oh, there was a vegetarian option. Oh, <laughs> oh, oh well. Don't don't. <laughs> Should we get to work? I think so. All right. Kevin, the last time you were on, we were talking about ADO.net, if I remember correctly. Uh, Don't expect you to remember, but that's okay. I probably am a little foggy myself. So now you're uh, into UML. Um, Yes and no. Um, There's uh, basically an alternative to UML diagrams uh, that Microsoft has uh, put out with uh, something called domain-specific languages. Yeah. So whereas UML is a generic language, uh, the domain-specific languages are actually languages you can create yourself that are specific to the business domain that you're working in, healthcare, oil and gas, what yeah. have you. I think the last time we talked about UML, we sort of 
and this was the last time we sort of, I think it might have been Rocky Latka who was talking about it, that it's great conceptually, but doesn't really translate into real code like uh, like a designer ought to, or, you know, some designers ought to, or people expect them to. Yeah, because it's, it's, it's really true. There's no um, events, for example. There's no, there, there aren't a lot of things that map directly to code. Well, there's some things that are missing, I guess. Let's put it that way. Right. And, uh, you know, it was created back in the 90s, and we have new things with distributed systems now. It's just really not well suited for that. And I've been teaching the UML and wrote that book that you mentioned in my bio. Mm. Uh, I've been teaching the UML since before it was ratified in 1997 by the OMG. OMG? Oh, my God. Companies. I'm sorry. Oh, my God. OMG. Exactly what it is. (laughs) (laughs) Object Management Group. Okay. And, you know, people, you know, you create the diagrams conceptually, and you can spend months doing this stuff, and at the end, uh, people are very disappointed that they don't get more bang for the buck. Yeah. You know, help them solve a, an analysis problem, but it, it was just a dead end, and, uh, you know, you're not able to generate uh, the kind of code you want from them. You know, what's funny is that everybody does this modeling, even if you do it on the back of a cocktail napkin. We always draw boxes with circles and arrows Mm -hmm. at some point Mm -hmm. when we're coming up with an application, but it never translates into code. It helps you think through the idea, so maybe you find some things, but the moment somebody actually sets down to start writing code, that diagram is dead. Yeah. But, you know, Kevin, I've heard developers say they don't want that necessarily to be able to translate their their etchings and drawings into code directly do you, what do you think about that is that something that's desirable do you think what and, and listeners too i mean tell us what you think i think it is desirable i think uh folks are uh disappointed with uh what they get out of your traditional uml diagrams and uh find that it's really not doing what they want it to do. And once you get into domain-specific language modeling, uh, people are just amazed at the things that you can do and the amount of time that it can save. So the problem is, uh, traditionally, UML diagrams are not first-class artifacts, right? And as soon as you start writing code, they diverge and they become outdated. So I, I would typically go to a company and we'd create an activity diagram in UML that modeled the business process. And, you know, it was great for figuring out how it worked, but you know, what are the chances uh, once I left that the model, uh, that the business changed, they'd go back and change the model. It just doesn't happen. Yeah. What, whatever happened to Rational Rose? Weren't they, like, totally into the whole UML modeling thing? Oh, yeah. Yeah, uh-huh. I, I used to use Rational Rose. Uh, uh, they had all the different UML diagrams. There's basically a dozen different diagrams. Mm. But, you know, your main ones are use cases, class diagrams, and sequence diagrams. And uh, again, uh, they get you to a certain point, but no further. Mm. And I've actually come behind Rational Software. Rational Software has been in with a company, and they're so in love with their own process and diagrams that projects implode under the weight of uh, diagrams and analysis paralysis kicks in. I know that in the case of my brother who we uh, interviewed recently, uh, Java Shop, he works in a Java Shop, and they had they went they all went to rational school 
right? They they took mm-hmm. the training, which was like a week of intensive training, and then never used any of it. And mm-hmm. I don't know if it was because it was too com- – I think it was because it was just too complex and they couldn't wrap their mind around it. I think that's what their thinking was. Well, you know what? And the biggest thing I find is you've got to prove benefit. And I think the number one benefit, the piece that's missing from all of these modeling tools every time is the feedback mechanism. Once a guy gets to code, how do you represent in the model the that the code is actually reflecting the model or that the changes you've made in the code alter the model? Yeah. Until right. that model lives against the code, it's a lie and it's just to be ignored. So, you know, Microsoft's first step in the right direction with that is class diagrams in Visual Studio. Right. So there is no forward and reverse engineering process. I mean, you can really view class diagrams as just a, a visual rendering of your code. Uh, it's a one-to-one correspondence, so it's a first-class artifact. And uh, the model and code never diverge. Now, they broke some of the UML rules to do that. They stuck mostly by UML. But uh, when it came to things like associations, um, you know, you can have these different uh, aggregation relationships and so on, and you have little black diamonds that represent something. But it's very difficult to translate that into specific code. So uh, where it made sense, Microsoft broke that in class diagrams and it made it mean something specific so that you could consistently generate code from it. So has your focus turned into this uh, the DSL features and, and products that Microsoft is offering? Are you really into that now? I am. And it's, it's actually a pragmatic thing for me. Um, a lot of what I do with folks is uh, business modeling, you know, object modeling in, in the business layer and data layer. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we can sit down with a class diagram, lay out the classes, put properties on the uh, classes, put methods on them to model behavior. And ultimately, it does produce the skeleton of a class. But at that point, we're like, okay, now we need to have some database tables that we can you know, store these business entities into. If you really so want to have to go manually create that now. Or you could use an ORM or, or something like or the entity framework. Do, do those the two things work together well? Um, they're really different approaches to the problem because... The entity framework is a bottom-up approach. It assumes right. you have a database. That's right. And then you're generating your business model from that. But an and hibernate might work. Right. And that is solving a specific problem. But uh, we can generate things like the signature of a method using class diagrams and tools like that. But what about generating the code inside the methods? Right. Uh, how can we do that? And that's where domain-specific language and a uh, modeling tool that's specific to the domain you're working in can go much further than a class diagram can. Yeah. yeah. So I can generate things like my business layer, my data layer, my database. I can even generate a user interface from a domain language. So the DSL tools will 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 create tables in co in, in SQL code as well. Well, uh, that's really up to you. Uh, basically, the DSL tools allow you to create a, your own modeling language. Right, right, right. And basically what you do is uh, it, it's a really great tool. Uh, you design your diagrams, and then you write uh, basically text templates that iterate through your diagram and can produce 
normally it's producing code, but it could also produce database scripts. It can produce user interfaces and so on. Very cool. And it seems like sort of the ultimate code generator. Yeah, it really is. Um, you know, it's that whole concept of a software factory. Right. Uh, it's one of the pillars of that, which is uh, model-driven development. And it's different than the model-driven architecture that mm. uh, we know about with the UML. Mm. Uh, with that, it takes you to a certain point, but you're using a very generic language to try to generate code. And honestly, it's, it's, you find yourself really trying to bend the UML to produce the code that you want. Yeah. Now, can I, uh, the obvious question for you, Mr. Mere Mortals, is uh, have, you, have you implemented the MereMortals.net framework, which you, this is one of your products, uh, into a DSL? Uh, yes, we actually have a DSL. Uh, we're actually getting ready to release it. Uh, that does produce uh, these different things uh, from models. So uh, that's one level of the uh, model-driven development where you can generate these sorts of things like database scripts and uh, business objects and data layer and that sort of thing. Hmm. And we might as well tell people what the MereMortals.net framework is at this point. Yeah, uh, basically it is an application framework. Uh, for quickly building .NET applications, WPF, uh, Windows Forms, Web Forms, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and, you know, we look at trying to make things easier for developers because um, you take a look at what developers are doing. Development shops are typically lots of bad practices. I do a lot of project rescues uh, and uh, come in, and it's pretty horrific. Uh, even large companies, you think, oh, certainly this company is very well known. You're going to come in and look at the .NET apps they've written and never cease to be amazed at how bad they are. But these bad practices are sort of the underpinning things, the way they're doing data access, their transactional models, those sorts of things? That and, you know, practices like copy and paste, you know. <laughs> they do. They have no models to work with. Uh, I get it, okay. And so a lot of the code is, okay, we need this project for this other customer. Let's copy what we did over here, and we'll just adjust this, this, and that. We'll change the code base a little bit, and then we'll make it work for that customer. Do you know the perfect formula for building and managing websites? Follow me here. Zero effort plus Sitefinity CMS equals infinity in website development. That's right. Telerik challenges you to explore its innovative Sitefinity content management system and offers you a chance to win a sleek Zune MP3 player or a Sitefinity license. These cool awards could be yours if you only answer a few easy questions about Telerik's Sitefinity CMS. All you have to do is watch five short movies and see how easy it is to build infinitely beautiful websites with zero effort. You'll learn some cool facts about Sitefinity and the effortless creation of websites. So go to www.sitefinity.com and give it a try. It's fun, it's interesting, and it can get you a free license or a free Zoom. One of the hardest projects I ever uh, gave up on nice. <laughs> was, was actually an access-based program with no relational tables. It was, it was flat. Mm. 
And he wanted to move it to the web and to SQL Server. And, uh, you know, I just sat there looking at this thing and trying to wrap my mind around how and if it could be relational and came to the conclusion that with the features that he wanted, it couldn't be. It really couldn't be. Because he was basically giving, uh, if I remember correctly, he was giving the user of the application the ability to either write their own SQL or do the equivalent uh, with some sort of DSL kind of thing. I can't remember really, but but that was that was one that I don't know if you've ever tried to uh, do that where where there's a, a flat data structure and then they want to try to map that to a relational data structure. Sounds like a train wreck. Yeah, uh, you know what? It, it can be done, but you have to recognize that it's a totally separate step. Like we've yeah. got to go right. Turn, make the database, take, migrate the data to a relational model, and then build the app. You can't do the thing simultaneously. It has to be re-architected to... It has to be re-architected. Absolutely, from the ground up. And I gave up on that. I was like, yeah, no. Nothing good luck with that. Good luck with that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, with this uh, architecture, too, uh, what happens with the UML is you've got a diagram, and then you try to bend it to do what you want. But with a model-driven uh, development and with the DSL tools... Uh, it's the best thing to do is look at what do I want to generate? Mm. What's very pragmatically, what's the end result I'm looking for? And then you design a language that will generate that for you. And uh, that language is a domain-specific language, and you know you create a model uh, that will allow you to generate that code. Now, is there some sort of repository or open source community where DSL implementations are shared? Microsoft does have a link on their site, and I guess I should send that to you guys at some point, but uh, where folks are doing those sorts of things. And it, this is relatively new. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it was September uh, 2006. Uh, where we had uh, the first implementation of it, but it was actually part of the Visual Studio SDK. Ah. Uh, good news is uh, it's part of also of the Visual Studio 2008 SDK. Uh, Microsoft's very committed to this whole model-driven development mm. and DSL tools, and they've enhanced it for Visual Studio 2008. But I'll put a plug in for a book, too, okay. uh, for folks who want to know more about it. Uh, there's a book called Domain-Specific Development, with Visual Studio DSL tools. It's actually a Microsoft.NET development series book. If you could send me a link on that, I'll add it to the show. Yeah, because uh, oftentimes I, I speak a lot about this at conferences, and it's not until I actually present the problem and then show, okay, let's generate code that will solve the problem now, mm. that you get the aha. Yeah. And uh, folks get pretty excited about it because... Um, it's something that allows them to get an application out more quickly. I'm just getting my head around the concept of a domain-specific language. Are we creating a language here? Like we're creating new keywords? I can give you an example of what I would, the first thing I would think of is, uh, you know, I've got some tools for like audio routing and sockets and things that I want to do audio over IP kind of stuff. And to sort of wrap up all of the the tools that I use, instead of writing subroutines and then trying to figure it out in the code, 
you know how how the flow should go and how the you know how the workflow should go and and all of that in the application i would just create these little sort of widgets that i could drop in a flow chart and uh and and i imagine that most of what you're doing in the dsl part in the designer part of it anyway is is business logic and right i mean it's flow control do this is this test test this condition branch here branch there i mean it, you end up doing a sort of a workflow do, do you not well there's actually a couple different types of diagrams that you can create with the dsl tools one is a workflow style uh, another is a class diagram style um, mm. and another is kind of a connection point uh, hmm. type diagram so depending on what you want to create you would use one style diagram or another. Yeah. But, like, for example, with class diagrams, right, if you've used that, you drag and drop a new class onto the diagram, and then you start configuring it. Right. But if I was doing something that was domain-specific, uh, let's say I'm working in the medical field, I can, in my toolbox I might drag and drop a doctor object on right. that's already been configured. Yeah. Specific to my domain. I can have a hospital object. I can draw an association between them. Right, that could generate some code from that. Hmm. Okay, I get this more than writing code in a in a language. This idea that I can diagram with these these uh, configured objects. Right. right, that's the idea. I buy into that, and then and of course, you look at these objects. Of course, they have methods and and properties and elements around them that uh, and how they can interact with each other. That we start creating this domain of knowledge around that particular app. Right. And so you can generate anything you want from it. It, it. Often it's code, but it might be configuration files, um, could be database scripts, uh, user interface, or what have you. And this is where I started seeing, we've, we've talked about software factories in the past with guys like Jack uh, Greenfield and stuff, where I could model up this representation of this doctor-patient application. And then once the model's done, you kick in the factory and it generates that incarnation of that app. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, and, you know, with the concept of software factories, those, uh, if you're a company that creates an application where you have uh, variants of your application uh, that you sell to different clients, right? you, you configure it differently for each client, you know, uh, that's where software factory and the DSL tools, for that matter, can really help out, right? You go to a diagram, you set a couple settings, and you generate. And so when, we, when we talked to Jack about this, he was talking about how Microsoft does this with their mobile client factory, where depending on the mobile device you're working with, it might have a different processor, different amount of memory, and so forth. So just being able to go through the checklist and configure all the different settings so that they built a version of the OS that worked with that platform, that I thought was pretty cool. But I like this even better. Like, I think about a product like SAP. SAP ought to be a software factory then, where I could bring in all these different modules and s configure them, because it... All of these apps go through tremendous amounts of customization, which is really arduous. Mm -hmm. If we could pre-configure as much of that as possible through this domain-specific environment, we'd save a ton of work. Yeah, the right. whole idea is to let the people who have the knowledge in the domain architect the solution without having to get their you know, hands dirty. Right. Mm. And you find that one of the big problems of software development is people are working at too low a level of abstraction. Right. Right. And they're and wasting trying... their time on menial tasks, 
and uh, you know you should we've got the tools and should be able to create those tools to generate it for us. And then, of course, there's the classic problem of you know having meetings and talking to the people with the business knowledge and trying to translate that into code, and the coders having their own ideas about what's good code versus what the business app should actually do. You know, classic stuff. That's where yeah. that's where things go wrong mm-hmm. because of the disconnect between those two brains. Well, in the high level, low level thing, um, it's so easy. Well, it, how many times have we done exactly this? You're working on the cocktail nap and drawing out what are really you know, domain entities, and that quickly goes ER on you. You start making tables from it, right? And and now you've you've really dipped down too low mm-hmm. already, and you want to continue to model at a higher level. It's true. I, I worked with a client in Munich, and uh, I was speaking at a con- conferences in Germany, and they heard me speak, and they liked what I had to say. So they said, hey, come on out for a week and uh, help us out. We've got a really difficult problem we can't solve. So I show up on their doorstep, and uh, I'm in the lobby, and the president of the company comes out and says, well, we decided the problem's too hard to describe to you, so I want you to take vacation for a week. What? Wow. Yeah. So I said, well, I might be taking vacation for a week, but you'll be needing to pay for my time. So I, it was like pulling teeth to have this guy sit down with me. I said, look, you know, I, and actually I was using rational rows at the time. And I said, you're thinking at too low a level of abstraction. So he said, yeah, we've been working on this thing for six months and can't figure it out. There's no way we're going to be able to do it in a week. Well, in one afternoon, based on what I knew about object modeling and working at a higher level of abstraction, and what he knew about the problem, we solved it. Nice. And, uh, I mean, so instead of taking vacation, we worked late every night that week. <laughs> <laughs> huh. But you, you stepping up that layer of abstraction, getting away from the details uh, of the code helps make the problem, uh, helps you work through the whole problem first. Right. So, you know, that's a, a first step for him was getting that conceptual part done. But now when it comes to the application of, oh, let's actually, you know, we need to create something out of this, you know, a domain-specific language can help out and say, look, you know, we're writing this code. We have to write all this config stuff. This is, you know, wrote, it's menial. Uh, let's generate it. Mm. And uh, it saves a lot of time, and it's more agile than agile. Well, how do we really need to write the CRUD code again? Right, yeah. I, I guess this is where the whole ORM thing comes as well. It's like, uh, you know, we've, we've written enough queries. We know how that works. We can generate those things. Right. And with, with notable exceptions, and I mean, there's two things here I'm, I'm hanging on to. One is I first am concerned that when we stay that high level, you get that architect disconnect where I'm architecting things can't be coded reasonably. Yeah. So how am I going to be able to let this come down to the developers and the developers, more importantly, be able to push back up and say, this doesn't code well? Yeah. Right. Yeah, it's a, it's definitely an iterative process. Um, and often what folks do with the DSLs is they'll take an existing piece of code. Uh, I tell developers, you know, you really need to change your your culture, your developer culture. Because uh, often when I show up, they're ashamed to show me their code. Say, so, well, you know, we, you know, had to do this deadline, the trade show, et cetera. And, uh, you know, so we take a look at their code and we say, all right, you know, what can we generate? 
you know, you guys are copying and pasting all over the place. You know, you have so many different copies of your code base. So we'll actually take a source code file and we'll add it to the DSL project. And at that point, you can identify the pieces that are constant and then the parts that are variable. And the parts that are variable, you generate the code from it. So uh, that's where it tends to be far more concrete than you know, a generic UML diagram. You, you find out first what is it we need, and then you build the diagram to generate it. So there tends to be less of a disconnect that way. I get it. So, and you know, the funny thing is we do this anyway. This is why we keep writing multiple versions of this app, right. is that we get a better domain picture after the first iteration of the app. So when we go and rewrite it, we suddenly can consolidate certain pieces and, and realize what's important, what's not important. And you do a few iterations and you get a much tighter package. Right. This is just trying to get there sooner. Exactly. And, you know, it's producible. Yeah, you can repeat it. And it's, you know, the concept of a factory where I can rep- uh, continue to produce code uh, that actually works uh, in, in a consistent way. So everything's repeatable. All right. right. Second concern. Performance. We get this abstract. We start generating these, this chunk of code. It gets used way more than we planned on. And now it's much more performance sensitive. And being able to, to drill into it and say, you know, we've got to tweak this. We've got to come up with a better way to code that. I, I battle with this. Doesn't that break the generation process? Well, uh, I find with those sort of things, um, because you do have a model at that point from which you've generated, um, and you may have a lot of different code you've generated from that model, uh, at that point, I can then go change the model, or I can change the actual uh, code that's the generator itself. It's actually text templates that are used, uh, like T4-type templates, if you're familiar with that. And uh, now I can produce something that is uh, more performant. And now I can make that change and do so uh, on a consistent basis. But, uh, you know, folks who are using this stuff, I have a number of clients who have been using it. You know, when new technologies come along, uh, instead of having to do a complete rewrite in order to get it, you can go back in and change your generator. Right. So now that it produces something, now, now I've got link attributes or what have you on my end. Right. It's also really nice to be able to, oh, there's an issue with the database instead of having to... Uh, you know, spend a lot of time undoing things and changing data. You can just regen when you're in that architectural stage. It's just right. much quicker to get it right. It's true because that's a, the issue of traceability. When something changes, where are all the things that need to change? And so it might be a column on the database, a property on an entity, uh, something in the user interface in a web form, another one in the WPF or Windows form. And when I'm generating a lot of that, uh, the traceability issue is solved because I change it in the model, regen, and it hits every place it needs to be hit. So my, the scenario that I've got in my head here is uh, an ASP.NET scenario that we've I've run into recently in helping companies performance to where they learned how to use data caching. Mm-hmm. And so they use data caching everywhere mm-hmm. and created this... Uh, mess of of interdependencies on cache objects. So the cache objects were expiring way more than necessary. And at the same time, we're consuming so much memory in their web servers because of all the cache objects that they were actually impeding performance. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, first thing was sort of pushing back on, look, you can't cash everything. It just isn't going to work. You've got to figure out what to cash, what not to cash. So now I see the way you've described the software factory, that we would go into the software factory and introduce the ability to configure a class as cacheable and then only switch on the ones we felt needed the performance benefit. Right. And when we ran into this exact same problem, when we cache too much, it's not a big deal to go back into the factory and switch it off on a few classes. That's exactly right. And uh, often to make the point when I'm giving a, a session on the DSL toolkit, uh, what we'll do is uh, demonstrate how the toolkit, let's say the class diagrams are usually the easiest in for, to get developers to understand how it works. But uh, I first show them class diagrams and show them, okay, the, this is how it works, this is how you add properties and so on. And then we create, you know, a domain model and I can show them I can change anything I want about this. I can change what's in the toolbox. When I select a class that's on my diagram, I can actually add new properties to the property sheet. So now we want to start tracking something that uh, we want to generate business rules, let's say. Hmm. So I could mark a particular column on an entity and say that this is required, right? And so right. I can go change my model, and now in the property sheet, when I click that, uh, click that entity property, I can now say, true, yes, this is required. And now I can generate a business layer that validates that, yes, this information has been entered. All these, it seems very almost aspect-oriented that I'm able to insert these sort of meta-rules and then the generation process implements them as I need them. Right. So same, exact same scenario, same problem, uh, and the next thing I, out of my mouth was, we really need to instrument the app to tell us how often cash items are being expired. And again, massively daunting task. We got a hundred different classes here. Every one of them is going to have to be altered. And right. if it was in a generation model, you would be going in and modifying the factory for generating those classes to say, I want every time this object is expired to, to write it out to a lock. Right. And then generate again. Yes, exactly right. And that's the sort of thing where people start using it and they see the benefit immediately as soon as the first change comes through. Like, yes, you know. Wow, yeah, very powerful stuff. Now, aren't developers just software factories? <laughs> I mean, aren't they? Human software factories. I get a paradigm shift here, and I hate saying that, but now suddenly you're telling me, stop being the software factory, start writing the software factory. I've, Don't right. write the code that the customer needs, write the tools that generate the code I, the customer I've needs. always been a fan of that. Um, and before I write anything, I ask myself, would it be easier for me to write the code that writes the code than to just write the code? So then I guess the question is, when doesn't this make sense? Oh, I, I can tell you that. I mean, when you're doing something that's technical, that's specific to a particular piece of hardware or a particular uh, implementation of an API or something like that, that that's where that's where you have a problem, don't you think, Kevin? Yeah. And, you know, some code will always be customer-specific, you know, and uh, or there's some things that can't be generated from a model easily. And those are your very complex uh, business rules, perhaps. Um, there's just some complex logic. You will be writing code. But uh, it's perfect for the mundane and, uh, you know, even for, even for some more complex things. 
So is it really a complexity factor? As soon as the app is simple enough, it's not worth the effort? Well, I think um, if you are a company that's creating software, if you're a consulting company, uh, it's highly useful um, for, let's say, you know a particular domain very well. You can actually start putting the knowledge of that domain into a domain model, go to different companies, and have a great base to start with. Uh, it's also great for companies that are building, you know, variations on a single product, right? It's a, it's a product you sell, and you change it a little bit based on what state somebody lives in or what tax rules they've got. Perfect place for that. Uh, even in-house applications, uh, if you've just got one .NET application, right, running in-house, but it's different things that you'd be generating at that point uh, than if you were selling a product to a lot of different customers. Yeah, I definitely this makes beautiful sense to me as soon as I'm shipping apps to multiple people where there's different running instances in different locations. I'm just trying to get my head around where an internal scenario makes sense. Right. Well, that's where we go back. I'll go back to the traceability problem, right? When I change one thing, what are all the things that need to change? Where are the dependencies? Right. So even in a single in-house application, if I had an entity model in a DSL diagram, and that's what was home base, that's where I put all my rules and what have you, uh, when something changed, I can change it in one place, generate, and uh, I'm done. So why haven't we always been doing this? I mean, what's really bringing this concept to the forefront? Tools. Yeah, tools. It's all exactly about the tools. Right. So yeah. what are the new tools here? What's what's so compelling? Well, uh, Microsoft's team uh, created a DSL tool for creating DSLs. Yeah. <laughs> the mirror in the mirror thing, you know? Yes. How recursive of them. Yes. <laughs> so, you know, how easy would it have been for you to create your own entity diagrams before, you know, and generate from them? It, you know, it's overwhelming. But now they've actually given you an easy in where uh, they've given you a designer, right? A graphical designer for creating graphical designs. So, uh, so where is this tool? This tool is in the Visual Studio SDK. Uh, it's both in Visual Studio 2005 and in Visual Studio 2008. Now, is it there already in the product or you have to download it? You have to download the SDK. But once you download the SDK... Um, now when you say file new project, um, if you take a look under other, uh, you'll see that there's, uh, there are project templates for DSLs. And, uh, when you select to create a new domain specific language, dialog pops up and say, so what do you want? Do you want a class diagram? Do you want a, uh, workflow type? Uh, you want something like with connection and endpoints, or do you want to, you know, bare bones, uh, blank sheet of paper. I'm going to create my own language from scratch. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I got to think that's pretty daunting to start from a blank screen. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. It is. But like you've already described, taking an existing application and backing into it with the DSL tools sounds a lot more palatable. It, it is. Absolutely. And once you've done that and, you know, you become familiar with that process, then... You know, creating newer applications with this, you know, uh, it becomes more of a default thing to do uh, because it's so much easier and you're saving yourself so much work in the long run uh, once you're familiar with the process. 
but I think some of the really cool jobs in the future uh, is I'm a DSL designer. I'm going to come into your company and I'm going to create a DSL for you, show you how to do it. I'm not going to build your app. I'm going to build the DSL to help you build your app. Right. That's great. That's, and it does sound like a great consulting role as well. Yeah. That it's it's just a short-term gig. Once you've got that set up and teach people how to maintain it, you ride off into the sunset. A rock star. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks so much. Tip your waitresses and try the veal. And off you go. <laughs> Absolutely. So um, is it, can we talk a, a little more about Mere Mortals now? Um, you want to just uh, tell people where they can find it? I mean, it's an application framework, but I mean, that's really a mouthful there because it's been, you've had this for years and it's quite mature as a product. Yeah. A little um, plug it, here? Absolutely. It's, uh, you can go to our website. Uh, we've got lots of information about it there. Our, my website is Oakleaf SD, like Sam David, or software development for that matter. So oakleafsd.com. And, uh, Basically, you know, we take a look at, you know, Microsoft often does an 80% job with any technology that it's got, and there's a gap between, you know, what you really need and what's been delivered in Visual Studio. So we try to fill that gap in with uh, different technologies and just making it easier to create .NET applications. And I'm a huge proponent of um, design patterns, so um, you'll see a very strong use of design patterns. Uh, Many folks are afraid of application frameworks because it's a marriage. And uh, when you have a bad application framework, it's Bride of Frankenstein, you know. Ah. But um, with this, with uh, strong use of design patterns, uh, you, you add a feature to the framework, you say, well, maybe someone will want to use it, maybe they don't. But using things like factories and uh, loosely coupled events and those sorts of things, you can make it very easy for someone to change what you've what you've put in but the dsl tools are a whole new piece of that for us um where you know we all we already have a tool that allow you to generate from a database up again the bottom-up approach which is pragmatic because lots of folks who are creating new applications have an existing database they're working against but again uh it's almost short-sighted when you could could go the other way and go from top down, uh, generate the database, uh, generate your entities, generate user interface, and so on using a DSL. Mm -hmm. But you know, as with everything with Microsoft, there's so much out there. You know, right. it's hard to keep track of it. Uh, people don't even know the DSL tools exist. Right, Kevin, would you be interested in uh, showing off some of this stuff on DNR TV with me? Sure, that sounds great. Any last minute words before we wrap it up? Shout-outs. Hi, Mom. Anything else? <laughs> I'd like to dedicate this program to Carl. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, man. Absolutely. Thanks for having me on. I'll dedicate the show to you, too. Return the favor. I I'm weeping openly over here now. Uh, honestly. Oh, nice. So we're all going to be together at DevTeach and, uh, and uh, SDC in the fall. Yeah. First week of October, I hear. Yes, yes. First week of October. Yep. And uh, I'll see you there. All right. Sounds great. And we'll see you next time. .NET Rocks. .NET 
.NET Rocks is recorded and produced by Pwop Productions, providing professional audio, audio mastering, video, post-production, and podcasting services. Online at www.pwop.com. .NET Rocks is a production of Franklin's Net, training developers to work smarter and offering custom on-site classes in Microsoft development technology with expert developers. Online at www.franklins.net. For more .NET Rocks episodes and to subscribe to the podcast feeds, go to our website at www.dotnetrocks.com. Got transmitter bands by the FCC.